Hey, everybody. It is Monday, May 15th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast, and I'm back. It's Mo Shwanunu. Guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> Mosh, we missed you. I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And Jill, as of the last time I was here, this is the place where we try to read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. I assume that's still the case. Funny you say that. <laughs> I took it out for about two or three days. I heard from a few people who were like, I miss in between the lines. Can you put it back? And I'm like, you know what? Sure. Why not? So I think for now we're sticking with we read in between the lines as well. The people, they're wedded to the <laughs> motto. They're they're wedded to it. Mosh, it is so great to have you back. And your trip looked absolutely incredible. Jill, it was a really emotional, powerful trip. Uh, I had the uh, opportunity to follow a group of uh, migrants, uh, 111 Ethiopian Jews, uh, immigrating to Israel, dealing with adversity, discrimination in Ethiopia, uh, and follow them as they reunite with family members in Israel. It just so happened as I was arriving there, that's when the conflict was heating up again between Israel and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. So also documented a bit of that, which I did a bit of on Friday's podcast. For those curious and looking to learn more about my journey, we uh, posted a bit of it on the Instagram feed, on the Mo News Instagram feed on Sunday. So be sure to check that out. Uh, we'll have more on a future podcast as well. And I will say this, being able to up close in person document the journey of those making immigration was really eye-opening. Uh, and I, I mentioned this on the Instagram feed, Jill. Took me back in a time machine as the son of a Moroccan immigrant who did that journey in the 1960s and the grandson on the other side of a German immigrant who made that journey in the 1930s, being able to see that in person was was really powerful, really emotional. And one of those stories, Jill, and I know you've probably dealt with this in the past before, where it was hard to separate yourself from the story. Absolutely. There's some stories that just kind of get under your skin, and I totally get it. Well, Mosh, thank you for taking us along on that journey. Really incredible stuff. Um, and we'll definitely be talking more about it here in the podcast. For now, though, we hope everybody had a great weekend, a really happy Mother's Day. Thanks for checking out our Mother's Day edition where we interviewed our moms. We got tons of really good feedback and uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, too, interviewing our moms. If you haven't heard that podcast, definitely check that out. Uh, I think it went up on the feed late last week, just as I was coming back. Jill, how was your Mother's Day? My Mother's Day, as I mentioned on our Mother's Day podcast, is I don't I don't totally feel like it's about me. I still feel like it's about my mom and my mother-in-law. But we had a really great day. The weather was was awesome. We hosted here. We had a ton of people over. No complaints. Lots of fun. Lots of family. That's what it's about. Do, am I a Hallmark card? What do you think? <laughs> Did I sell it? Did I sell Mother's Day? Jill, you got 364 days till the next one. <laughs> All right, Mosh, you missed a ton of news. I hope I made you proud with this podcast all week. Let's get to the headlines. We're going to check in on the first big test on the southern border this weekend following the removal of Title 42 and the state of immigration policy. North Carolina is the latest battleground when it comes to abortion. A Democratic governor is facing off against a Republican legislature. A major election in Turkey, President Erdogan facing a big test after nearly 20 years in power. And we're going to have an update from Israel, where Moshe, of course, just traveled back from. The challenge ahead for Elon Musk's new hand-picked Twitter CEO, the Florida man who broke the record for the most time spent underwater. And Moshe has on this day in history. We'll talk about two big icons today, Jill, Mickey Mouse and McDonald's. 
All right, let's start with the southern border. The U.S. was preparing for a, quote, tidal wave of illegal immigration this weekend after Title 42 officially expired late last week. For weeks, Republicans and even some Democrats were hammering the administration for not doing enough to prepare for that influx. Even President Biden himself warned of chaos with the expiration of Title 42, which was that public health law tied to the COVID pandemic that let the U.S. expel millions of migrants in the name of keeping COVID out of the country. Well, after weeks of anticipation, it has been quieter than expected, at least so far this weekend. U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said Sunday that Border Patrol agents have seen a 50% drop in the number of migrants crossing the border since Thursday. The White House is arguing that reinstating criminal penalties for illegal entry is likely the biggest reason why. He said there were about 6,300 border encounters on Friday and 4,200 on Saturday, down from 10,000 a day earlier in the week. Under the new Biden plan, migrants need to first schedule an immigration appointment through an app or seek protection from a country that they pass through on their way to the U.S. border. If they don't follow the process and are caught entering the United States, they are not allowed to try again, even through legal means, for five years. And there are prison terms for other violations. At the same time, the White House admits they're not out of the woods here, and it's still very early, and they are comparing this weekend's numbers from those record numbers earlier in the week. So we're basically back down to the record levels we were before and not the super records that we were experiencing earlier in the week. Last week overall was still a record-breaking week at the border. Almost every day set a new record high in the lead-up to the end of Title 42. As you noted, Jill, they were encountering 10,000 people plus a day, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday was actually the highest one-day total ever recorded. So when you look at the whole week, border agents arrested a record-breaking 67,000-plus undocumented migrants in total for the last week alone. Another 16,016 evaded capture by Border Patrol entirely and escaped into the country. And you noted, Jill, that uh, some of those new measures that have gone to effect, uh, including that uh, many of these migrants do have to register or try to seek asylum in countries before they get to the U.S., Uh, Keep in mind, many of these asylum seekers are coming from Central America, some from places like Iran, China, Haiti, Cuba, etc., making their way through Central America and then through Mexico before they hit the U.S. So ostensibly, they have to make claims in Mexico before attempting to come across the U.S. border. But this isn't just a border issue. The ripple effects of the border crisis are being felt far beyond the southern border. You do have border state governors uh, like states like Texas who are busing migrants to northern cities like Chicago and New York. Both of those cities have declared states of emergencies despite being thousands of miles away from the border. New York City is reportedly shelling out $8 million a day to house migrants, forcing the mayor here, Eric Adams, in the Big Apple to then uh, bus them to nearby suburbs. So they're struggling here in New York City to house migrants. It's an issue they've been facing down in Texas. Reportedly over the weekend, dozens of homeless veterans who were in one hotel were pushed out for now migrants. And in another case, one couple had their wedding guest reservations canceled to accommodate migrants. Yeah, Moshe, across New York City, you've got hotels like the Roosevelt in Midtown Manhattan that served tourists just a few years ago. They're being transformed into emergency shelters, many of them in prime locations within walking distance from Times Square, the World Trade Center Memorial Site, and the Empire State Building. 
A legal mandate requires that the city provide shelter to anybody who needs it. Mayor Adams says the city is running out of room for migrants and has sought financial help from the state and federal governments. Yeah, reminder here. So we talked a lot about Title 42. So Title 42, dead. Uh, in fact, some Republican states actually tried to keep that alive despite the COVID health mandate going away. And judges basically said, no, Title 42 only applies if you have a public health emergency. So Title 42 is gone. Say bye-bye, right? Now we fall back on Title VIII. Title VIII is the decades-old law. It requires a hearing for everyone who comes into the U.S. claiming asylum, claiming refugee status. We did an explainer on this over on the Instagram account. And this has real ramifications. Under Title 42, one border agent could process and send 40 migrants back to Mexico in a matter of five minutes. Again, one border agent, 40 migrants, five minutes. With Title 42 now gone and Title 8 in place, it'll now take an agent anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to process just one migrant. Because keep in mind, we now have to have a hearing. This is the old law. We now have to have a hearing for anyone who claims asylum. So in many cases, they will release families uh, and uh, any child that comes across without a parent into the country saying, you have a hearing next year on this or in a few months. And there will be multiple hearings. And this process could take years. In the case of uh, individuals, uh, particularly single men who come across the border, the U.S. will either try to hold them or send them back across the border, or in some cases, also release them within the country. But this is where the backup issue is happening. There were some court cases on this over the weekend. Under Title VIII, the U.S. has to have a hearing for everybody. They can't just deport more than 2 million people like they did before. And so now that is leading to a crunch. And while they're not seeing the major surge, they saw early last week of 10,000 a day, Still, we're talking about four, 6,000 people a day. They have to process each of these people or families, uh, schedule hearings, uh, and have a process rolling here. And in the meantime, like they're finding out in New York, they have to house these people. I was listening to a report, Mosh, and the journalist had spoken to a couple of migrants who had crossed the border and they were processed. Their date to come back to be in front of some type of judge or to get processed, etc., 2027. That's how backlogged we're talking about here. Jill, the country has not invested in the systems to be able to deal with this. And we are seeing such an influx of people, again, some with legitimate asylum claims, right? Some coming from countries, from situations in Central America, other countries where they have uh, imminent risk. They cannot return. At the same time, we're just, we don't have the, the judges, the systems in place to deal with it. And unfortunately, that means that that is falling on various localities and states to uh, accommodate people. And it means that these people will not know their full immigration status for years. All right, now to 2024 politics. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has still not officially announced his bid for president, but it's looking like it could come any day now after a visit to Iowa this weekend. That's usually a sign, Mosh. When the governor of Florida spends the weekend in (laughs) Iowa, Jill. (laughs) On Saturday, DeSantis sought to weaken former President Trump's grip on the party with multiple appearances in the state. That included a trip to a barbecue restaurant in Des Moines, just minutes from where Trump was set to appear, but abruptly canceled because of anticipated severe weather. Although the weather actually didn't materialize. The Trump campaign explanation drew skepticism from Iowa officials and speculation online that former President Trump 
may have feared a smaller than expected crowd at the event. So he pulled the plug. DeSantis avoided discussing Trump's legal entanglements and instead highlighted the GOP's recent string of electoral losses. The Republican Party has struggled in every national election since Trump's 2016 victory. DeSantis said, quote, we must reject the culture of losing that has impacted our party in recent years. The time for excuses is over. If we get distracted, if we focus the election on the past or on other side issues, then I think the Democrats are going to beat us again. Hmm. Yeah, that culture of losing, quote, we'll see if uh, that's something he repeats over and over again. It's clear who he's talking about there, Jill, without saying it directly. Uh, Many Republicans have uh, blamed Trump for ensuring their midterm losses in 2018, then losses in 2020. Because of many of his candidates in 2022, his handpicked candidates, they were not able to retake the Senate and they had lesser than expected results in the U.S. House. And so DeSantis here is doing a tricky dance without, you know, overtly criticizing Trump, but still criticizing Trump while he continues to remain a candidate, not a candidate, but we know he's going to be a candidate and he's doing this dance. The big question for DeSantis is whether he can repeat his political success in Florida, where he dominated this most recent midterm election. I mean, really remarkable win there for re-election as governor. Can he do that on a national stage? Well, there are some people who clearly believe that he has earned some major endorsements in Iowa among Iowa Republicans. That includes the state Senate president there and the state House majority leader. And why is Iowa so important? Well, it is the first caucus state. It is the first indication uh, that we will get early next year of where Republican voters are and whether they are fully behind former President Trump or whether um, other candidates can start to nip into his lead and potentially be the next Republican nominee. Establishing a foundation in the state early will be key if someone like Ron DeSantis can beat Trump in Iowa uh, next January, then go on to other victories. That can establish himself as the sort of anti-Trump. The one thing many Republicans don't want to repeat, especially anti-Trump Republicans, is what happened in 2016 when there were a number of people competing with him and Trump was able to win primary after primary with a little over 20% of the vote because the rest of the candidates were splitting up the vote. So there's a sort of quarter or a third of the Republican base that is fully behind Trump and then about two thirds that isn't convinced that he's the guy again. And if a DeSantis can come in and win in Iowa, win in some other states, he can clear the field and have a one-on-one battle with Trump. And that is where you have an opportunity to potentially beat Trump. If there's a bunch of candidates, again, like 2016, splitting the vote, that'll allow Trump to sort of sneak through with a third of the party. Correct. So the bottom line is Republicans are going to have to coalesce around another candidate. If they don't want Trump, they can't be split between five or six different candidates. They're going to have to figure out who their alternative is and just get behind that person. Right. Trump is hoping that there are going to be many people running against him and they all have the ego to stay in it, whether it's Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis, etc. And then those who don't want Trump within the party are going to want like, guys, everyone get out, pick one to run against Trump, because that's the only shot of taking him out. So that'll be the big question. Iowa will play an important role here. So will New Hampshire. You're going to be hearing a lot about those two states. Uh, Key for DeSantis here is Florida is an early voting state. So uh, that'll be helpful to him. But then you also have like Nikki Haley's and Tim Scott's from South Carolina, 
also an early voting state. So we're very early on here, but the weekend trip from DeSantis uh, in Iowa was important. It establishes him there. And so we will be on the lookout in these next couple of weeks for a Ron DeSantis announcement. And then uh, early this summer, we will have two Republican primary debates. It's still debatable <laughs> if uh, Trump will be competing in them. He says he doesn't want to elevate them. But at the end of the day, he may feel forced uh, to do it. One other notable thing I'll say, Jill, Ron DeSantis is starting to make a generational argument as well here. Uh, we should keep in mind he's 44 years old, born in 1978, uh, whereas Trump is going to be 77 next month. And so DeSantis is another candidate in the Republican field saying it's time for some new blood. All right, we've got plenty of news coming up, but first a word from some of our sponsors. Let's start with Bowl and Branch. We are so happy to be partnering again with a brand that helps you get an amazing night's sleep. Bowl and Branch, they have a great sale for Mo News listeners. These sheets are made with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. Mosh, I could truly attest to that. They absolutely get softer every time you wash them. Um, these sheets have already been bought by millions of people. The company actually spends a lot of time focused on the supply chain. And it turns out that organic cotton is much better for the environment and also for the farmers in India where Bowl and Branch sources their materials. We discussed this on the Instagram account recently. Another interesting fact, we recently learned that four U.S. presidents have used Bowl and Branch sheets Okay, but let's get to the deal here. Starting now, Mo News listeners will get 15% off site-wide. You can use our code MONEWS to get 15% off today at bowlandbranch.com. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code is MONEWS. All right, Joe, let's talk about our other big sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. We've both been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. Easy, quick. It lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. We all know that getting all your vitamins, all your nutrition, the probiotics is challenging, and the AG1 powder lets you do it very simply every morning. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs to take with you on the go of AG1. You can visit right now athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of the offer and get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, it's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, to access this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read from NPR. A major test for abortion policy in a key U.S. swing state with split party rule. On Saturday, North Carolina's Democratic governor vetoed legislation that would have banned nearly all abortions in the state after 12 weeks of pregnancy. Governor Roy Cooper's veto launches a major test for leaders in the Republican-controlled General Assembly. Republicans recently gained slim, veto-proof super majorities in both chambers and will now look to override Cooper's veto. Current state law bans most abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. The legislation to change that ban to 12 weeks passed along party lines last week in the House and the Senate. 
Republicans have pitched the measure as a middle ground change to the state abortion laws developed after the months of private negotiations between House and Senate GOP members. There are exceptions to the 12-week ban, extending the limit to 20 weeks for rape and incest and to 24 weeks for what they call certain fetal anomalies. Yeah, Joe, this is going to be a fascinating story to watch unfold in North Carolina. A purple state, again, as you mentioned, with with a Democratic governor and a Republican-led House and Senate. Republicans in North Carolina say this is much less onerous than the complete bans or six-week bans that we've seen in a dozen other states. However, Cooper here is still opposed. Democrats saying that the measure is not a reasonable compromise and would greatly erode reproductive rights. Cooper cites new obstacles for women to obtain abortions in North Carolina, such as requiring multiple in-person visits, additional paperwork to prove a patient has given their informed consent to an abortion, uh, increased regulation of clinics. Democrats argue this will force clinics to shut down, that many of them can't afford the major upgrades, the new licensing standards that this law requires. And we should reiterate here that the super majorities in North Carolina are very slim, like literally by a vote or two. Governor Cooper is actually targeting a handful of members. One of them is Representative Trisha Cotham. She is a former Democrat who just switched parties to Republicans to help give the Republicans the supermajority. Incidentally, she spent years as a Democrat speaking out for abortion rights, even talking about codifying abortion protections in the law. Then a couple of weeks ago, she switched parties to the Republicans uh, and then was one of the votes here uh, in favor of this new restrictive ban. It's interesting, Jill, because she's actually spoken out about her abortion in the past. And again, was with the Democrats, switch votes here. There's a lot of animosity, including her constituents who are like, we voted in a pro-choice Democrat who's now become a Republican who is uh, in favor of more restrictions. So there's some frustration among her voters and the Democratic Party there. So this is a story we'll be watching very closely, especially as we've seen a number of states take uh, different approaches to the abortion issue in the lead up to, I guess, the next round of elections in 2024. From Bloomberg News, President Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey is facing the greatest political challenge of his career after millions of people voted on Sunday in pivotal elections that could reshape the country's domestic and foreign policies. As the final votes are counted, it appeared early Monday morning in Turkey that Erdogan may not have clinched 50 percent of the vote meaning he could face a runoff with challenger Kamal Kilisdarlu. Erdogan had about 49.5% of the vote, with his challenger at 45% of the vote, as the last few percent were being counted. A runoff would take place in two weeks. The elections took place three months after devastating earthquakes killed more than 50,000 people in southern Turkey, and in many ways are a referendum on Erdogan's two decades as the country's dominant politician. He's faced an extremely tight race, largely because of anger at the state of the economy, high inflation, and concerns among many voters that he pushed the country toward one-man rule. Yeah, this is a election we're closely watching for a number of reasons. Keep in mind, Turkey is a country of 84 million people, a member of NATO, a key U.S. ally, one of the world's 20 largest economies. And it plays an important role as a middle ground here between what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, what's happening in Europe, as well as what happens in the Middle East. Kilis Darolu represents a coalition of six opposition parties and has vowed to shore up the country's economy, restore Turkey's democracy. Erdogan, for his part, is Turkey's longest serving leader. 
If his name seems familiar, it's because we've been talking about it for probably more than 20 years now. He's molded the country into a regional power, as I mentioned, that's playing a growing role in Ukraine, in Syria, uh, related to the war in Russia. That said, his policies are a bit all over the place. He's not a reliable NATO ally all the time. In fact, uh, earlier this year, he was blocking Sweden and Finland from joining the alliance. He's been critical of Putin, but then he also serves to try to be a moderator, uh, a mediator of sorts in between Ukraine and Russia. He likes to play multiple sides here internationally. But more important in this election were his domestic policies. Jill, you mentioned earlier inflation and the economy. So if you thought that, I don't know, 4%, 5%, even 8% inflation we were facing in the U.S. was bad, well, since 2018, Turkey has been suffering from inflation that has exceeded 80% annually, 80% annually. And they actually had a drop last year that he was touting. He's like, listen, inflation's come down to 44%, 44% inflation. So just imagine going to the store uh, and seeing prices increasing at that amount. And that's what the average Turkish voter is going to the polls on right now. Staying abroad here, a ceasefire was agreed to this weekend between Israel and the Islamic Jihad terrorist group in the Gaza Strip. The agreement, which was brokered by Egypt, brings an end to what was five days of intense fighting that killed 33 Palestinians, mostly fighters and about a dozen civilians and two people in Israel. It appears that the deal is essentially quiet for quiet, although the Islamic Jihad claims that Israel agreed to stop assassinating leaders of the group. The calm brings a sense of relief to Gaza's more than two million people and hundreds of thousands of Israelis who had been largely confined to bomb shelters in recent days. But the agreement doesn't address the underlying issues that have fueled numerous rounds of fighting between Israel and Palestinian terror groups in the Gaza Strip over the years. The latest violence erupted Tuesday when Israeli airstrikes killed three senior Islamic Jihad commanders. Israel said that the airstrikes were in response to a burst of rocket fire the previous week and that its attacks have been focused on Islamic Jihad targets. Jill, I filed a report for Friday's podcast uh, from Israel as those rockets were incoming. There were a total of more than 1,200 rockets that were shot off over a few days from the Gaza Strip. Nearly all of them were intercepted by the Israeli missile defense system. Israel actually said that about a quarter of them fell back uh, on Gaza were misfired and fell back on Gaza, actually killing a few of the civilians, uh, sadly, on that side. Though a number of rockets did get through, killing an 80-year-old Israeli, as well as, incidentally, a Palestinian laborer who happened to be working inside Israel who was killed by one of the rockets. A reminder, these rockets very cheaply produced. Some of them go for as cheap as $300 a pop and are just aimed at Israel with the hope of wreaking chaos, not aimed at any military targets of sorts, just trying to get them over the border. Israel then returned fire. Uh, They've received some criticism for the civilian death toll on the Palestinian side. As you mentioned, no larger agreement here, no larger settlement over what's happening in the West Bank, over how to deal with larger issues in Gaza, just essentially... Let's end the conflict, the military back and forth of the last few days. Jill, one notable thing that uh, many people are thankful for, and one of the reasons that didn't escalate into all-out war that we saw a few years ago, the more powerful Hamas group that controls the entirety of the Gaza Strip uh, did not get involved this time. While they did praise Islamic Jihad strikes, give them rhetorical support, they did not enter the fighting. And we should add here that they're effectively the government that manages the Gaza Strip. They're responsible for the conditions, for the work permits for Palestinians to work inside Israel. And they were facing a lot of pressure from Iran to join the war. Hamas 
realizing that it has certain responsibilities here, so it'll be interesting to see how this transitions them, uh, has again decided not to get involved in the conflict. They kept it confined to Islamic Jihad and Israel. Israel made a point of telling Hamas, hey, we're not going to blow up your stuff, so don't get involved. We're just dealing with the smaller terror group, your competing terror group. Jill, just to say here, there are a lot of competing groups here, competing leadership structures, is a very small piece of land with a lot of complexity. Uh, and that is a bit of what we saw last week. Moshe, we're all glad that you're back safe and sound. Interestingly, you and I were able to talk on the phone briefly when you were in Israel. And you, as you documented on the Instagram account, had to at one point go into one of those bomb shelters, uh, even though you were in Tel Aviv and a little bit further from where those rockets uh, were firing from. And you told me that you actually felt just as safe in Israel as you do in New York City, perhaps, whether it be riding on the subway or walking around the city, worried about guns and and things like mass shootings. And I I just think that that says so much. Jill, I got this question from a lot of people who were like, oh my God, how are you not freaking out right now? And I'm like, well, you know, we live in a country with 45,000 gun deaths every year and mass shootings. uh, And, you know, there's various crimes in cities and rural areas. And America isn't 100% safe. And so I guess I had the same feeling over there where I'm like, you just have to have your head in a swivel. You have to be aware of what's going on. Uh, It so happens that on the uh, Israeli side, if you're more than 10 miles from the border, I mean, the poor people who live 10 miles within the border, they had to live their life in bomb shelters. That was a different story. As far as the rest of the country is concerned, the missile shield that they have is pretty effective. And while people may avoid doing, uh, you know, out of the ordinary things or going to concerts, um, incidentally, there was a Backstreet Boys concert that was canceled uh, over the weekend in in Israel because of the missile threat, though then another concert uh, happened. Uh, For the most part, people are able to go about living their lives. And it's like, oh, the siren went off. Let's get into the shelter. And I should say, Jill, that uh, Tel Aviv was targeted. It just so happened the missile shield was very effective because when the rockets go at that high of an elevation, they have an, a better shot of taking them out. So within a few miles of the border, the shield is probably 96% effective. When you get further out, the shield gets to be about 99% effective because of the height of the rockets. So that's the situation there. But I just want to say one more thing, and that is just that my heart goes out to the civilians who live on the Palestinian side, who live on the Israeli side, who just have to deal with this, unfortunately, way too often. That the fact that they even have to think about this and they can't live their lives uh, and have to go into shelters and have to fear for their lives. And of course, there have been civilian deaths, right, in this most recent round is just so sad. And, you know, this has been a conflict that's gone on for decades. I mean, if you go back far enough, centuries, but let's go with the most recent decades. And they haven't come to a resolution. And that's why I thought it was important to note in this podcast, they didn't come to a larger resolution here on the conflict. They just basically are like, can we stop killing each other for a little bit uh, with no real resolution? And and who suffers in all of that is the people, is the civilians. And so hopefully at some point they'll come to some sort of resolution. All right, Moshe. Well, we are glad that you are home safe and sound because we did miss you. Uh, But great reporting from over there. Before we complete our speed read, we just want to thank everyone for signing up for Monu's Premium. The Monu's team has been expanding every week. We're so grateful to all of you who have headed over to mo.news slash premium. Again, that is mo.news slash premium. Joining Monu's Premium is a way to help support us in sustaining what we're currently doing on the podcast, on the Instagram and the daily newsletter, and help us grow our offerings. So joining Mo News Premium, which you can do right now, again, at mo.news slash premium, gives you access to a private podcast feed 
with behind the scenes episodes and early access to our interviews. You'll also, with membership, get access to our members only Instagram account for additional content, get your questions answered over there. And of course, the added benefit of all of this is knowing that you're supporting independent journalism. So right now for $7 a month or $70 a year, that is actually two months off on the annual package, you can join Mo News Premium again over at mo.news slash premium. From USA Today, a follow-up to what we first reported on Friday. Elon Musk has tapped NBC Universal advertising sales chief Linda Yaccarino to succeed him as Twitter CEO. Yaccarino will focus primarily on Twitter's business while he focuses on product design and new technology. Until her resignation Friday, she was chairman of global advertising and partnerships at NBC Universal and oversaw $13 billion in annual advertising revenue. Her appointment as Twitter's new CEO was well-received among major advertisers and comes at a key time for the social media company. Yeah, Musk indicated for a long time that he would step down uh, running day-to-day operations for Twitter, because keep in mind, he has SpaceX, he has Tesla, and he has Twitter, and he needed somebody that would actually manage what's happening at Twitter. So he still owns Twitter, but she will now manage things day to day. And she does come at an important time. Twitter's advertising business has struggled since Musk took over the company six months ago. He actually bought it for $44 billion. Uh, Many people now say that it's worth less than half of that at this point. Jill, many advertisers were not happy with the was the word you were using earlier, vibe? The vibe of the, the vibe company, was the off. path he was taking it on? <laughs> the vibe has been off at Twitter. Uh, Musk, of course, has slashed 75% of the workforce there. Um, there have been some technical glitches, etc. Twitter is weighed down by $13 billion in debt that it took on to enable Musk to buy the company. So she does have a challenge ahead, but she's very well regarded. Yaccarino was instrumental in creating multiple revenue streams over at NBC, dealing with their Peacock streaming service. Uh, And so one of her goals here, one of her big missions initially will be reestablishing trust with major brands, increasing ad revenue, and figuring out a future for the social media company. Because right now there's a lot of people, including Mark Zuckerberg over at Facebook, who see an opportunity to basically pick off the user base at Twitter Uh, with a new platform. So they need to right the ship pretty quickly. From CBS News, a Florida University professor broke the world record for the longest time living underwater this weekend. And he is not ending his sub-aquatic lifestyle just yet. Saturday was Joseph DeTore's 74th day living at Jules's Undersea Lodge, the previous world record set by two other professors in 2014 was 73 days. DeTori plans to make it to 100 days underwater, taking him into early June. He tweeted on Sunday that, quote, the curiosity for discovery has led me here. My goal from day one has been to inspire generations to come and learn how the human body functions in extreme environments. Jules's Undersea Lodge is located at the bottom of a 30-foot lagoon in Key Largo, Florida, He is also still teaching his biomedical engineering class online, according to the University of South Florida. For some reason, I was picturing him like in the Indian Ocean or something. It's he's in in a 30 foot (laughs) lagoon in Florida. Jill, I thought it was important because we so often hear about Florida man, like a Florida man doing something bad. (laughs) And I thought like a Florida man headline where somebody is actually doing something good for science, albeit slightly, you know, abnormal, (laughs) slightly irregular, 
is still important to note. Apparently, Duturi goes by the moniker Dr. Deep Sea. Though, I don't know, can you call yourself Dr. Deep Sea at 30 feet <laughs> in, in a 30-foot lagoon? He reportedly has been eating a protein-heavy meal of eggs and salmon prepared using a microwave. He has a microwave down there, apparently. He's exercising every morning using resistance bands, doing daily push-ups, and uh, he takes an hour-long nap every day. I like his style. Though, I don't know how I feel about uh, <laughs> microwave-prepared salmon every day, Jill. That's kind of blah to me. But anyway, you got to do what you got to do when you're trying to live 100 days underwater. Apparently, unlike a submarine, the lodge does not use technology to adjust for increased underwater pressure. That said, they do have a medical team that travels down there doing routine dives uh, to run tests on him. That includes psychological, medical tests, blood panels, ultrasounds, uh, stem cell tests, electrocardiograms. They have a whole regimen they're putting him through to make sure that he is healthy. They also have a psychologist and psychiatrist documenting the mental impacts of living in an isolated confined environment for a lengthy period of time. Apparently, visitors can also head down there to say hi. Right now, he does <laughs> plan to resurface on June 9th, so he just has a little over 25 days or so left of this. Uh, Jill, he says he misses one thing the most. Care to take any guesses? I was going to say the sun. You're right. Oh, really? Look at that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not family. It's not friends. It's not eating non-microwave <laughs> salmon. It's the sun. The darkness is getting to him. Wow, I really feel like <laughs> he and I are on the same page. Jill, he's taking visitors. <laughs> so if you want to go visit Professor Duturi, a.k.a. Dr. Deep Sea, he'll be there for at least three more weeks. Kudos to him. I think what he's doing is really cool. And maybe he will inspire the next generation of scientists or deep sea divers, uh, etc. Given the way climate change is going, we're all going to be Dr. <laughs> deep Sea in Florida sometime soon. Seriously. <laughs> All right, now time for On This Day in History, on this May 15th. Jill, we're going to start in 1643, as we do. A four-year-old Louis XIV ascends <laughs> to the throne of France. Yes, he was oh, four years old. Oh, we missed you, Moshe. When he... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, he was four years old when he became the king of France. Apparently, his mother, Queen Anne, helped him those first few years, though there was a whole competition. He would end up ruling Jill for more than 72 years, Louis XIV. All right, let's fast forward to the 20th century. On this day in 1928, Mickey Mouse makes his debut in a test screening of the silent animated short, Plane Crazy. Uh, Mickey would then appear in another film later in 1928, and of course, has become an international icon. Speaking of icons, or icons to be, on this day in 1940, the first ever McDonald's fast food restaurant opened up in San Bernardino, California. It was actually called McDonald's Barbecue. It was founded by two brothers, Richard and Maurice, what else, McDonald. They were just focused on having a barbecue joint those first few years, but in 1948, they simplified the menu, settled on the name McDonald's, they dropped the barbecue there, and felt they could sell more, be more efficient with a very slimmed down menu. They would become a franchise in 1954, adopt the iconic golden arches. But at the end of the day, they did not seek to have this sort of international chain. They just wanted to have a small number of restaurants, do okay. It was Ray Kroc, and you may have seen documentaries on this or read books on this. Ray Kroc in 1961, uh, just a few years later, buys the company for just under $3 million and would transform it into the international chain we know today. The Founder is a great movie about it with Michael Keaton. He plays Ray Kroc. If you're interested in this, I highly recommend. 
as is clear that, again, the bulk of my knowledge about pretty much everything comes from movies. And and you, Mosh. And uh, certain NBC series that came out in the 90s, Jill, which leads us to our next story. This week in 1998, 25 years ago, the series finale of Seinfeld aired. It was May 14th, 1998. Final episode, one of the uh, most viewed TV shows of all time. It ends, of course, with the cast being sentenced to spend a year in prison together, removed from society. And we found out in that episode, Mosh, that George cheated in uh, the quote-unquote contest. If you've seen that episode, you know what I'm talking about. I would say spoiler alert, but I think there's now been like a statute of limitations. It's been 25 years. Jill, it's been 25 years. And Jill, one other cast we had to say goodbye to this week in history, 20 years ago, this week in 2003, Dawson's Creek series finale aired. A show that produced many stars, Joshua Jackson, Michelle Williams, Katie Holmes. And Jill, let's not forget James Vanderbeek, who uh, would go on to a couple uh, more network series after his time as Dawson, of course. All right, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Wait, Jill, I just discovered that Vanderbeek means from the creek. Did you know this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it, that feels a little too on the nose. <laughs> it's a little too on the nose, right? I, I Guys, we're going to have to dig deeper into this, but I was just m- messing on the Wikipedia of James <laughs> Vanderbeek because I was like, what happened to James Vanderbeek? And Vanderbeek in Dutch means from the creek. And I'm going to have to come back on tomorrow's episode and figure out what the relationship is to the Weirdly, Wanunu <laughs> means news. I thought I had never... <laughs> It's very yeah, strange. Yes, and world. Wagner is German for love of Seinfeld <laughs> and friends. Yes. Um, <laughs> a reminder to join Mo News Premium, where we'll talk further about this. Joe, uh, always maybe, on the Premium yes, Podcast. Please. Always. Yes. Yes. Join Premium and to ask these questions and get answers. Mo.news/slash/premium. Seven dollars a month, seventy a year. Uh, really exciting to see the Mo News team expand and uh, have access to the members-only podcast, members-only Instagram account, etc. And don't forget to call us with your thoughts, your questions. We have a voicemail, 1-800-711-MOSH. Leave your name, leave a number, leave us a message, say hi, uh, ask a question. We'll answer your question in a future episode. We loved getting your uh, advice from your mothers for the Mother's Day episode. That was really special. I have to say I was tearing up just listening to, to people calling in and telling us their advice that they got from their moms. It was so nice. Be on the lookout today for a special extra episode. We have an interview coming out on the main feed today. So be on the lookout for that around noon. Other than that, I'll see you guys back here tomorrow. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.